You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Of our church Bibles. The all knowing and ever present God. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty and I am unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark for you. The night shines like the day and darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you? I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. and Lead me in the everlasting way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. All right, it's a beautiful psalm, beautiful poem. Um, do you guys recognise some of it? Some of you, some of you will know it well, just because you like to read the psalms, and some of you will know it well, at least parts of it well, because you love Christian merchandise. And so, if you've got a tea towel, or a bumper sticker, or a mug. Um, you probably have some part of this psalm on here. If you've ever been to a women's conference or a kids' ministry conference, 
Uh, you probably know some of this psalm. There it is. Um, Christian merchandise makes a lot out of the psalms in general and uh, this psalm in particular. But what I want to do is actually skip the part that everyone always reads and begin with the part that everyone always skips. All right, This is the part that is not featured at the Women's Ministry Conference or the Kids' Ministry Conference. And it begins at verse 19. The psalmist David writes this, God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. Always get skipped at the conferences. Now, I've never seen a tea towel with that on it. Can you imagine having a mug with that verse on it? In fact, you can have one now. I made one. Pull it up, Phil. There we go. It's not actually available now at, at the Red Door merch store. But one day, God, if only... I mean, imagine just bringing that into the staff room. The reason I want to begin with that verse and these verses is because I think... Well, first of all, they're always skipped. But also, I think they're the interpretive key to this whole psalm. And this is... I mean, I didn't come up with this. This is... Scholars will disagree about exactly the context for most of the Psalms because we don't have a little booklet that goes along with it um, written by the authors. But most will um, attribute this Psalm to David, as it says in the, in the introduction, um, but specifically to David when he was being taunted, when he was being accused by his enemies. Uh, this happened at various times, and so we can't pin it down to one particular instance, but As the king, David was very um, vulnerable to being falsely accused by people who wanted his power, people who wanted his place. And so in response to these accusations, he says, God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, stay away from me. You who invoke who invoke you, who invoke God, who swear by God deceitfully. Your enemies, God, swear by you falsely. And then he goes on, don't I hate those who hate you, detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. This is the key to the rest of the psalm, to our understanding of it. There'll be some things that David says in this psalm that I think we should emulate. This isn't one of them. The reason we shouldn't emulate him in this is because Jesus taught us not to emulate him in this. He said, as you know from our Sermon on the Mount series, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you to love your enemies. The issue is not that we won't have enemies, it's just that our response to them ought not be vengeance, but love, blessing. Pray for those who persecute you. And yet, I think we can only understand the psalm and what's sort of driving his desire to paint a picture of God who knows him well if we understand the context, these attacks that are being made against him. So in response to the accusations, he goes to the only judge who really knows the condition of his heart. There are those who are saying he is not a godly man, not a man after God's own heart. He ought not be king. 
He's not fit to hold the role. And so David's response, and this is, this is something that we ought to emulate, his response is not what we so often fall into when we're accused. I don't mean by you know, people who want to take you down at work and take your position, though it might be the case. Far more regularly, it's in our own households. We find ourselves being accused. Our response more often than not is to defend ourselves. I did not do that. I did not say that. How dare you think that about me? David shows us a better way. It's not defense. It's to run to the judge, the only judge who knows right from wrong. He's the only judge who knows the condition of our hearts. He's the only one who could either condemn us or acquit us. And so he goes to the all-seeing, all-knowing God. Verse 23 and 24, following that expression of hatred, he says, search me. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. I hadn't thought about this until that very second, but some of you are old old enough, um, I'm not, but some of you are old enough to remember when uh, Tricky Dick Nixon was um, getting into all kinds of trouble over Watergate, and, uh, and, and um, as the President of the United States, he, he held this very famous pref- press conference where he came out and said, I welcome this examination. You know, something like, because uh, the people ought to know whether their president is a crook, and I'm not a crook. So this is very often the response of organizations that are being, um, that are being investigated. Um, Manchester City Football Club this last week has had over 100 charges levelled at them for misdeeds, financial misdeeds, and their response was the same. It's a smart thing to say. We welcome this investigation. We have nothing to hide. It can be a way to cover deceitfulness. That's not David's heart here. Clearly, he says, test me, God, not that the outcome will be that I will get away with something, But test me so that I would know if there is any offensive way in me. He understands that he has blind spots like everyone in this room. We can't trust ourselves to judge ourselves. We'll just keep giving out hall passes, making excuses. Or we just won't see it in the first place. We won't see the sins that we commit daily because... We commit them daily. We've made peace with them. So he says, he goes to the only one who knows all and sees all and says, test me. See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. That could be the simple prayer you pray every morning this week. What an amazing prayer. It's possible, Lord, that I am walking down a path of destruction or at the very least, a path that is um, hurtful to others and inhibiting to my soul being made more like your son. So, show me. Hold up a mirror. Shine your torch in my heart and expose wherever there is anything offensive. Don't just do that, though. Do that and lead me in the everlasting way. 
lead me in the righteous path. So that's the scene kind of set for this poem he writes about the all-knowing, ever-present God. All-knowing, ever-present God. So let's flip back to verse number one. He says, Lord, you have searched me and know me. He goes on. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You know every action I take. You understand my thoughts from afar away, every thought that I have. You observe my travels and my rest wherever I go, whatever my location is. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know about it, Lord. Every word I speak, before I even say it, you have encircled me. You have placed your hand on me. God is all-knowing. Every little thing about you, every, not just every action, external, or every word that can be heard, but every internal thing, every thought, every motivation known by God. He is all-knowing without any asterisk, without any except in these circumstances. God knows everything about you to infinitesimal degrees. He knows you. He knows you physically. He knows you mentally, psychologically, spiritually. He knows all. It's on this basis that David can appeal to him to test him, to see internally, to see what's going on, to see what even he can't see about himself. This wondrous knowledge, he says, is beyond me. It is lofty. I'm unable to reach it. Like, I can't even know about myself what you know about me. Now, this, you could, like, people can respond to this truth about God's all-knowingness in a couple of ways. At one level, this is very comforting. A universal need of every human being on the planet, even the ones that say that they hate people, a universal need for all people is to be known. We need people to know us. One of the reasons that we fear death so much is because with death, um, within a certain period of time, we are forgotten. To be known is to be alive, to, be, to, to have the desire to be known is to be alive. And God says, or David says of God, you know every single thing there is to know about me. Beautifully comforting in some ways. Also risky, threatening in other ways. It's risky for us to be known by someone. It's risky for the very inner parts of you to be exposed to someone. The more people know us, the more potential they have to hurt us. 
Am I right? The counseling I do with married couples, more often than not, the damage that's been done has been done because they know one another well, because they love each other so much. How often have you heard, even just in conversation, someone in the depths of their pain say, how can he hurt me so much when he is meant to love me so much? Why is it that the ones who are the closest to us do the most damage? It's because the more we are known, the more the potential is there for us to be hurt. So if there is a being who knows me utterly to the very fiber of my being, who knows the motivation of every action and every word, then there is great potential for me to be hurt by that person, that being. And yet David delights that he is known by God. Why? Because God... God explores us without exploiting us. God knows us utterly, but doesn't use it against us. Never will use it against us. God has never been a blackmailer. God has never resorted to leveraging his knowledge to get us to do the thing that he really wants us to do. If you've ever felt that way, it wasn't God at work, someone else all together. He loves us and his knowledge of us only fuels his love for us. That's, that's the crazy thing about him. The more he knows me, even me, the more he loves me. Now, with you guys, my fear is the more you know me, the more you will back slowly away from me. It's this remarkable section in Romans chapter 8 where Paul kind of gets at this. And he says in, in, in chapter 8, verse 27, he says... He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit that dwells within us because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So he searches our hearts. He, he, he knows every little square inch of our hearts, representative of our whole being. He searches, and yet, what's the, what's the outcome of that searching? Not condemnation. The God who knows every little vile thing about me. A few verses later, Paul says, verse 33 and 34, who can bring any accusation against God's elect? Well, the one who searches us and knows us, for sure, right? If anyone can bring an accusation against David, it might not be his enemies, but it's certainly the God who knows his heart. If anyone can bring an accusation against me, certainly it is the God who knows every little vile thought that passes through my mind. And yet Paul says, no, God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns. Christ Jesus is the one who died. Even more has been raised, is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. God's response to seeing the blackness of our hearts is to 
pour out just wrath on his son and then send his risen son to pray for us. It is an odd God that we worship. He sees what is repellent in us and rather than being repelled, he's drawn near to us. That's why David delights in this. He's not saying, you know me and therefore I am petrified. He says, I I know that you know every part of me and, and, and this wondrous knowledge is beyond me. He explores us, but he doesn't exploit us. How does it make you feel to be reminded? Because you already know this, right? You've known this since you were tiny. You know it actually, you just know it instinctively. How does it make you feel to know that God knows everything about you. And those games you play with him where you think he sees you on Sunday morning but doesn't see you on Monday morning, like those games we play, what, what, how does it make you feel to know that they are just foolish, childish games? That actually he sees you, the real you, not the Instagram you, the real one, the unfiltered one. might make you a little fearful of what, he, what he's going to do with that knowledge. might make you a little fearful about how he's going to judge you when he comes again. Some of us, like Adam and Eve in the garden, would prefer to hide from God than to run to him. Hiding, it turns out, doesn't do us much good because God is not just all-knowing, but he is ever-present. All-knowing, ever-present. Verse uh, verse 7 to 10, this is what he says. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If if I make my bed in Sheol, that's just the grave where everyone goes where they die, Sheol, you're there. Oh, if I go up to heaven, first of all, that's where you are. Down there, you're there as well. Uh, then you, you might have in your translation something about the, the dawn and the sea. Um, that's just from Jerusalem, the east and the west. Okay. If I live in the eastern horizon or settle in the western limits... Even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. God is ever-present. All-knowing, ever-present. You can't run away from him. You can't... um, uh, This is... How many of us do this? It's, It's so silly, but it needs to be kind of said out loud for us to see that it's silly. I think we just do this by nature. How many of us... Think of God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Right? When we're doing the right thing, God's with us, but then when we do the wrong thing, we can hide from him. How many of us do this? When we're, 
being a good Christian boy, then, yep, I'm happy for God to see me. But then when I'm going into the darkness, when I'm doing that shifty deal at work, or cheating on my taxes, or cheating on my wife, then I can hide somehow. It's like we have, like an, you know, the incognito mode on your, on your web browser? It's like we feel like we've got that with God. He can read my search history because I've got this incognito mode. I've got this private mode. And of course it's nonsense. Your kids will tell you, that's crazy. Why would you think that? The first thing you learn in Sunday school is that God is everywhere, all-knowing, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent. And yet we play these games with ourselves. I'm guessing it's just like a psychological tool we use to, to, to make peace with the fact that we are at once sinners and saints that we're at once raising our hands on Sunday morning and, and then jumping into the darkness on Monday morning. Some of us love to run to the darkness thinking that it will cover our deeds. But he says, listen to this, verse 11 to 12, if I say surely the darkness will hide me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, he says. God sees through it. Jesus' friend John picks up on this and he doesn't mince his words. He's a lover. He's the, he's the disciple Jesus loved and he's full of love and he's always telling his church that he loves them, but he doesn't. The way he loves them is by telling the truth, right? And, and, and this is what he says, 1 John chapter 1. Just hear this. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we are lying and are not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We don't have two modes in our Christian life, public mode and incognito mode. We don't have that. It doesn't exist. If we willingly, habitually, um, even, even with a sense of um, enjoyment, choose to walk in darkness, John says, we're lying. We don't have fellowship with God. There is no darkness with God. He sees straight through the darkness. To him, darkness and light, there is no difference. He sees all. He knows all. He is ever-present, even when we run from him, even when we hide from him, even when our deeds create a kind of darkness around us. He is there. He is present. So God is all-knowing. God is ever-present. We're not just known by him, but here's the thing. 
He is calling us to know him back. We are known by him intimately, like every single little detail about us is known by him. And then he is calling us to begin to know him back. This is your mission in life. Know God. A day at a time, growing in the knowledge of God. David delights in this knowledge. Listen, in, where are we? Verse 17 and 18. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. How precious are your thoughts to me. That is how how great it is that I know you. Not just that I'm known by you, but that I know you. Even though to know God is way beyond me. His thoughts are like sand on the seashore. Like try counting the the sand. We've got no chance. And yet to know the unknowable God is the purpose of our lives. To know the Lord that we can never know fully. That's your mission. Some have taken the unknowableness of God, like the the infinite nature of God, and have made an excuse not to really ever get to know him. What's the point in dabbling in all this theology and trying to learn, read the Bible? Like we can never, God is beyond our, like this is a very postmodern thing to say, God is beyond our categories. God's not in our box. God can't be sort of harnessed by words, which is partly true, but the fact that he wrote a book about himself should show us something about his knowableness. God is calling us to know the unknowable God. You pick this up in, in Paul's prayer to the, for the Ephesians in chapter 3, right? He says this exactly. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints, that's you guys, what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. Do you get the joke? so that you may be fooled with all the fullness of God. We can't know God, so what's the point? No, he says. You can't know God, and you should try every day to know him more. To know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. That's your whole mission in life. It's not the only mission you have, but it's one of the most important There will be a day that will come, and I can't even, like, my, my brain can't, can't conceive of this reality, but there will be a day, the day, when you will know God fully. Can you believe that? See him face to face. I think it's 1 Corinthians 12 that says... Uh, 
1 Corinthians 13, 12, that says, now in this life, right, right now, as we're here at church learning more about who God is, we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Whoa. So God knows every little tiny thing about me in an all-knowing, ever-present sense. That day is coming when we will know as we are known. Huh. Now, often it works out like this. Like if God gives you a picture of the last things, like the new creation, gives you a picture of what that will be like, then you can deduce and work back and sort of reverse engineer that what shall be is what you should be working towards now. Christians have often thought in the past, well, it's going to be like that in heaven, so I'll just hit cruise control, and then when it happens that I get hit by a bus or die as an old man or, or, or Jesus comes back, then we'll get into the, you know, the next phase. That's not how things work. There is no disjuncture. This begins now. Your all-knowing of who God is and what he's like begins now. To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. (laughs) You are known by God and he is calling you to know him back. It's a beautiful song, a beautiful poem about the nature of God, all-knowing, all-seeing. Now, if this is true, then this changes the way we do things around here. If this is true, then it should affect the way that we behave around here. And by around here, I don't just mean church Sunday morning. I mean around here on the face of the earth. God is close, closer than you could ever imagine. God knows every intention of your heart and every careless word. God is present whether you have the lights on or off. And God is calling you to know him just as much as he knows you. For us as a church, a big part of our mission is to see this happen. This wasn't our idea. This is just written for us in the script. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is what Paul says to the church and to to the, the church there and our church in here as he's talking about the leaders of the church and what they're for. He says, Jesus gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Leaders of the church exist to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the what? Knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a full measure measured by Christ's fullness. 
pretty lofty. It's going to take us the rest of our lives. And we're never going to get there. And yet he still keeps calling us to it. So this is why we keep saying, please come along to our Thrive group on Monday night, because that's what that exists for. It exists so that we might know the unknowable God, so we might grow into the fullness of maturity to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's why we keep saying, join a small group, because you know what? They exist for that reason too. And at some level, our whole church exists for this reason. There are other things that we will do, but never will we let go of this, this mission that all of us would know Jesus as he knows us. So to that end, I'm going to pray for us that that would be true and that we ourselves would not um, respond to this with any sense of obligation that's born out of guilt, but rather an inward motivation to know the God who knows us and to love him as he loves us. I'm going to pray for that. If you agree with what I'm praying for, you can give me a big amen at the end. All right, let's pray. Father, we believe that these your words to us have authority over us. That anything true that's been said this morning is not, doesn't carry, carry the authority of a priest, minister, pastor, or teacher, but it comes the authority of the Lord himself. I pray that those who have ears to hear would hear and respond. I pray for those of us who are spending half of our lives in darkness to come out into the light. For those of us who respond to accusation with defense, lead us to repentance. Lord God, you know us, you search us, and yet you don't condemn us. I praise you for your grace, your forbearance, your forgiveness, your love, your mercy. You know us, and yet you love us. Lord God, please make this church in this place, a church committed to growing together in our knowledge of you. The kind of knowledge that doesn't swell heads but grows the soul. That leads to transformation and growing Christ-likeness. I pray for this church a hundred years from now that it would be doing this and more and doing it better than we could ever imagine. That you would bless us in that way. For those of us who are hiding 
away from small groups and accountability and prayer because we love the darkness, please draw us out to the light. Send a brother or a sister to lovingly lead us into the light, Lord, I pray. Father, as we stand to sing your praises together, I pray that through that action of praise that you would overcome anything that's standing between us and you. Any built up, calcified sin, anything habitual that is destroying our communion with you, break it down, Lord, even as we praise you. Let my people go. Father, even now, in the rest of this time that we have together, search us. Know our hearts. Test us. You know our concerns. See if there is anything offensive in us. Any path or pattern of sin. And then take us. Turn us around. And lead us in the everlasting way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.